Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Neil Lewis, Assistant Professor of Communication and Social Behavior at Cornell University. Neil works on a range of issues, but today we'll talk about his work on how different socioeconomic groups define what is and what is not an environmental issue. The work touches on a variety of policy areas, from industrial pollution and housing policy to climate change and unemployment. Neil will help us understand how individuals define environmental issues differently and how being more cognizant of those differences can help inform policymaking. Stay with us. Okay, Neil Lewis from Cornell University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me on the show. So Neil, you have a ton of research interests spanning variety of areas, topical areas and disciplinary areas. But um, we always, uh, because we're going to talk about environmental issues uh, today on the show, uh, it would be great to know how you got interested in working on environmental issues. Yeah, so there are a few moments in my life that I think really steered me towards studying environmental issues. Um, The first is um, that I took this AP environmental science class way back in high school. Um, where we talked a lot about the relationship between people and their ecosystems. And those lessons have always sort of stuck with me and been there in the back of my mind over the years. Um, Then the second thing is that environmental issues came up in my other work. Um, So I started my career by studying education and health disparities in the United States. Um, And the more that I worked on those issues, the more I realized how much differences in the environments people are living and working in matter for their ability to learn and live healthy lives. Um, So, you know, there are studies on how air pollution near schools affects students' health and cognitive functioning, Mm -hmm. studies on how living near toxic sites affects other health outcomes. And so over time, it sort of became more and more clear to me that if I really want to understand education and health disparities and interventions to address those, I also need to um, start examining disparities in people's environments. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, helps us uh, frame today's conversation, because that's, in a sense, exactly what we're going to be talking about, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, what counts as an environmental issue. And uh, and so let's get into that conversation. And um, so I, I just actually said the name of the title of the paper that we're going to be talking about, <laughs> which is, uh, what counts as an environmental issue? Differences in issue conceptualization by race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. Um, you're an author, along with uh, uh, several other co-authors, Papers in the Journal of Environmental Psychology. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. And the paper starts off by describing uh, a misperception uh, that racial and ethnic minorities tend to be less concerned about environmental issues. Can you start us off by giving us an understanding of where that perception might come from and how evidence on that topic has evolved over the years? Yeah, so that misperception um, is an interesting one. So there are, of course, a number of factors that matter, but the two big ones um, that we've been thinking about um, that sort of reinforces misperception and um, a lot of work has um, come to show over the years. Both of them really have to do with issues broadly related to representation and visibility within the environmental movement. Um, so the first thing is if you look at media portrayals of environmentalists, so if, um, studies that have sort of looked at how our environmentalists portrayed um, in uh, the media and broader public discourse, what you see most often is middle-class white people, 
right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so if that's all you ever see, then that would lead you to believe that, well, those are the only people who care about the environment. Um, so the media really frames how we think about uh, the issue. And so that seems to be one place that uh, these misperceptions are coming from. The second one is representation in organizations. So environmental organizations, um, at least in the U.S. context, tend to be very white as well. So in the U.S., minorities comprise just 12% of the staff of both governmental um, environmental agencies and non-governmental environmental organizations. So again, as you look around um, at sort of who are the faces of the environmental movement, um, it's once again middle-class white people. So those patterns, um, seeing those patterns leads people to assume that, well, those must be the only people that care about those issues. And so those seem to be some of the big drivers of the misperception. Yeah. And we actually interviewed uh, Dorsita Taylor, professor from yeah. the University of Michigan, on that exact topic uh, yeah. over a year ago now. But uh, it was a really illuminating conversation. Yeah, that's the backdrop of our, our, our work. <laughs> yeah, great. So you and your co-authors in this paper describe some of the reasons why um, uh, individuals who are part of minority groups or are of lower socioeconomic status might see environmental issues differently. They might have a different concept of what it means for an issue to be environmental. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, that difference and maybe give us a couple of examples of where it shows up in the real world? Yeah, so this is where I think we have to pay close attention to research in sociology <laughs> um, and history for that matter. So the differences in what people count as environmental issues that we find in our work uh, seem to stem from different experiences that people have had from living in very different social worlds. So if you live in a poorer neighborhood, you may notice that it's not only the air quality or water quality that's bad, or that there's not much green space to get regular exercise, but you also notice that things like obesity rates are higher. There's less high quality food around. Um, you know, kids aren't doing as well in school. So you start to see these things as all part of a larger interconnected uh, set of problems. Um, if you're living in a wealthier neighborhood, you may not see many of these problems. So you wouldn't notice that they are related. So uh, it's these differences in the social world that um, we think are really driving these differences in perceptions of what counts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, ties into you know much larger uh, societal problems, right around um, around justice and equity. Yeah, absolutely. So to explore this particular issue, this environmental issue, uh, you and your co-authors did a survey where you asked over a thousand respondents to rank which issues they thought of as being quote environmental issues. Um, you asked about 18 different issues, so we probably won't be able to talk about all of them. But can you pick, uh, you know, a couple or three uh, that you think are interesting and that might help us understand uh, why some groups might see a given topic as environmental while others might not? Yeah, so um, among the, the issues, the, the two of the ones that had the biggest differences in our study were poverty and racism. And this sort of made perfect sense to me, given those um, social stratification, those segregation issues we were just talking about, those differences in sociology. Um, so if, you know, you're a lower income person, you're aware of where the low income housing tends to be placed within a city, um, and that they tend to be closer to uh, the environmental hazards um, than the wealthier housing in the city. Whereas if you're a wealthier person, you never have to notice that. It's a more abstract issue. You might hear about it on the news from time to time, but it's not a problem that you really ever have to deal with, um, so you don't uh, really connect the dots. 
Um, if you're a racial minority person, you probably learned a lot more about things like mortgage redlining and other policies that explicitly divided neighborhoods by race, put white people in the better parts of town, minorities in the worst parts of town. So it's clear to you that racism is also part of the story here. Um, whereas if you're a white person who um, had not learned as much about that part of American history, in part because we often overlook some of those things as we teach history, um, then you're like, what are you talking about? Racism has nothing to do with the environment. So again, these differences in context end up affecting how people understand uh, these issues and whether they um, see the connections between them or not. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's get into some of the results of the survey itself that you carried out. Can you give us a high-level overview of some of the things you found? Yeah, so the high-level takeaway from the paper um, is that, you know, we find that race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status um, matter for what Americans consider to be environmental issues. Um, and that is due to these different experiences um, that Americans have had in our segregated nation. So, you know, we have um, these survey results, but we also um, have another paper on that did more qualitative research to get a deeper understanding of what's going through people's minds. And it's very clear that it's these real differences um, in the lives that people are living, um, the, the experiences they're having, the things they're noticing that are sort of driving these uh, perceptions. Yeah. Interesting. Can you um, maybe dive into a little bit more detail there and talk us through um, maybe a couple more of the issue areas that you talked about and what some of the differences were? Yeah. So, um, you know, we had, so the issues that came up, uh, as I mentioned, poverty and racism before, but there are issues of um, health inequality um, as well. So um, obesity was another one of those um, issues that came up. Uh, there was talk about access to green space, um, um, contamination in tap water, um, a host of things that are really connected to broader um, structural inequities. Um, so there's these connections between environmental issues, health issues, social inequality um, more broadly that some groups are seeing and others are not. Mm -hmm. Great. Are there any other results from the study that you found particularly interesting that you want to dig a little bit deeper on and tell us a little bit more about? Um, so, yeah, when they looked at the sort of overall rank order, so if we, you know, taking a step away from the racial differences um, for a moment, um, just looking at the overall rank ordering of issues, um, I was a little bit surprised to not see climate change as the number one issue. Um, you know, there's so much talk about climate change, um, and I thought, Overall, that would be the number one issue. But participants um, had pollution and uh, contamination as uh, sort of as ranked higher than climate change, which I thought was interesting. I mean, they're not huge differences um, in terms of mead levels. Um, so I don't want to read too much into it. But I guess part of me did expect climate change to be number one issue. And maybe that's just reflective of the bubble I live in where that's all anyone talks about. <laughs> right. Yeah, we it's it is important to remember that climate change is one of one incredibly important but one of many important environmental issues. Yeah, absolutely. So so can you elaborate on that a little bit more? So like what was the difference that you found when it came to different groups perception of climate change and um I'm curious if you have any hypotheses as to why it might have ended up the way that it did in your results. I mean, I I want to be clear. It's it's still high. I think it was number 3 on our list. I don't have the paper up in front of mm -hmm. me, but it was number, I believe it was number three on the list. Um, but I, it was 
noteworthy to me that these other issues that people are dealing with, like the immediate pollution and, you know, lead contaminations come up. So um, you're in Ann Arbor. I used to live in Ann Arbor um, and then the state of Michigan, um, you know, lead contamination was a big issue that was talked about a lot. But yeah, um, so it's interesting to see that in this broader national survey, um, this is also um, a bigger issue that was on people's minds. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that Flint story really did make it out of Michigan, I think. Yeah. Um, and clearly has had an effect. Just so people are are aware of that rank order that Neil mentioned, I just pulled up the paper. And if you go to table one of the paper, you'll see this for yourself. But the rank order of you know the largest differences between groups, and you'll correct me if I'm characterizing that uh, wrong, but uh, pollution from industrial facilities was up at the top, followed by lead contamination in drinking water, followed by climate change, yeah. followed by drought in the Western U.S., followed by flooding, uh, and then there are a variety of other issues as well after that. Yeah. So these other um, issues that people are sort of seeing um, and experiencing in different parts of the country are pretty high up on their list of concerns. Yeah, absolutely. One other issue that you looked at in this study is people's perceptions of environmental justice issues or environmental racism uh, and how those perceptions were related to their responses on other environmental issues. What did you find when you sort of crossed those uh, two layers together? Yeah, so part of the reason that there are these differences in sort of counting uh, the more human-oriented issues like poverty and racism as environmental issues seems to be due to differences in concerns about environmental justice. So we're um, finding you know, minority and lower income respondents in our sample were more concerned about environmental justice issues like placing hazardous facilities in minority communities. And those environmental justice perceptions explain some of the variance um, in the differences that we found. This is all so interesting. And, um, you know, there's so many rich findings in the paper. I'll encourage people to look into it themselves and, uh, and dig out some more details. But when you, again, think broadly about some of the conclusions that you're reaching here, um, I know not all of them are brand new, but they're certainly confirming some hypotheses that we may have held before. What are some implications that you draw, whether for policymakers who are thinking about environmental policies, uh, or also maybe for advocates who are thinking about advocating or messaging their environmental issues in various ways? Yeah, as I've been thinking about this work, um, I think the practical takeaway is that there are different issues that resonate with different groups of people. Um, and so if environmental advocacy agencies or policymakers want to broaden the tent and build more inclusive coalitions, um, they may have to start talking about and advocating for addressing a broader set of environmental issues um, that realizing um, those differences um, in what people are concerned about um, is essential for um, developing broader sets of message that will build coalition um, to address um, these broader issues. And so that's the current takeaway for me um, right now. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about that that makes me think of is the what I think about the framing of the Green New Deal, mm -hmm. uh, whether one agrees with you know its its broadness or not. It seems to me that the sort of advocates of the Green New Deal, as defined broadly, 
are, are pretty aware of these issues, or at least they are including them in the tent of the Green New Deal, right? Thinking about policies to directly address things like access to healthy food, uh, mm-hmm. access to green space, uh, dealing with poverty issues. Um, does that sort of uh, comparison make sense to you? Yeah, that comparison makes total sense to me. And that's something that's, um, you know, we've been talking about in our own uh, research group um, is sort of seeing um, those proposals come out. And, and it's like, yeah, that that seems to fit with what we're finding, that if you're going to, um, if you're wanting to broaden the, the pool of people, then you might have to start talking about um, a broader set of issues. So, yeah, totally in line with what we're seeing. Yeah, interesting. Um, I wonder, I mean, one of the challenges from a policy perspective and maybe from a political perspective, but I'm curious about what your sense is of this, is, um, you know, as the definition of environmental issues becomes broader, then the set of solutions that one might need to think about also becomes broader. Um, And then you have the risk, and again, this is something that's hotly debated, and I'm not trying to weigh in one way or the other, uh, but you have the risk that broadening those set of policy solutions could make it more difficult to get legislation passed rather than uh, a legislative approach that is more narrow, focusing on something like pollution from industrial facilities without trying to go at these kind of more structural issues like poverty, uh, access to education, and and other uh, issues that I think we all agree are important, but could be seen as different in part because of the different policy solutions that would be required. How do you think about that um, sort of political dynamic? Yeah, I mean, this uh, the this political dynamic has always been there in uh, the environmental movement. And um, so if you read some of the early papers on environmental justice, um, this same issue was talked about then, that um, there's this tension because it's easier to get um, political support for sort of narrower um, issues that you feel like you can get big wins quickly. But that doesn't necessarily address the broader set of problems that people are facing, or at least some people are facing. Um, so there's this tension of uh, how do you get support for addressing um, the issues that people are struggling with um, when there's often not the political will to really tackle larger structural problems. Um, I don't know what the solution is. Um, I don't think it's, you know, pretend that the broader issues are not there. Um, but it is something you know. Policymakers, uh, politicians um, need to think about: is how do you build that uh, coalition to make progress? Yeah, and it's something really valuable for us at RFF and and many other folks who work on environmental policy to, at the very least, as you say, be aware of uh, as we as we think about you know policy design or you know when we get in the weeds of how to design cap and trade or how to, you know, mm-hmm. allocate revenues from a carbon tax. Like these are yeah. all important issues, but don't yeah. necessarily speak to that broader set of issues that you're raising here. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, it's possible to use some of that revenue to address uh, some of the other issues. Um, that gets politically dicey, I think, sometimes, but uh, we have to ask the question. Indeed. Yeah, well said. All right, Neil Lewis from Cornell University, thank you so much again for talking to us about this work that you have been carrying out with your co-authors and expanding upon it for us, helping us understand the implications. It would be great uh, now to close us out with our uh, typical feature that we call Top of the Stack. So asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard recently uh, that's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. <laughs> and um, I'll start off with uh, something really great that I came across recently, and it's totally 
totally unrelated to this topic, um, but I just loved it, so, so I wanted to share it. It's uh, a story map, which is a sort of interactive uh, article slash mapping tool that you can experience for yourself online from the National Energy Technology Laboratory. Um, and it's a story map that shows um, how uh, people go about trying to detect abandoned oil and gas wells, mm. uh, which is something I've been working on lately, uh, using helicopters, drones, and other technologies. So they, they have this really great set of maps and pictures from Western Pennsylvania, which is where the oil industry began uh, in the 1850s and 1860s. Um, and there are all these descriptions of how they try to find all these abandoned wells that are scattered around the area. Uh, mm. And really wonderful pictures of the people and the maps and the places and the pollution uh, during that time. It's just really evocative and really great. And we'll have a link to it uh, on the show notes. Yeah, I'd love to take a look at that. Yeah, cool. So, uh, but how about you, Neil? What uh, would you recommend to our listeners to check out? So one book I read recently that I think is relevant for this conversation um, is Palaces for the People. Um, it's a book by um, Eric Klinenberg, um, who's a sociologist at NYU. Um, so it's not explicitly about the environment per se, um, but it is about the broader conceptualization of environmental issues we've been talking about on the show today. Um, so, you know, the social infrastructures that different groups of people have access to um, shape their understanding of the world and their willingness to engage with each other. And so um, that's something we ought to think about as we try to build a more sustainable future. Um, and I, so I really like the way that that book talked about these interconnections between issues. Um, and I think it's useful to think about that um, as we develop policies going forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. Palaces for the People. And what was the name of the author again? Um, Eric Klinenberg. We'll have a link to it uh, on the show notes so people can can dig it up and, and check it out for themselves. Uh, but once again, uh, Neil Lewis from Cornell, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about your work. It's been fascinating. Thank you again for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.